0: This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it.
1: The button portion stops here. Plug the radio
0: in. Yeah,
1: there's a key. everyone. Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ratio Christi, the Student Apologetics Alliance. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program where we help you answer the question, Why should I become a Christian? Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And Kirk, we have a great topic today. We are going to be speaking with an author, friend of mine, Doug Powell. And so we'll bring him on a little bit, but first we've got a couple items to get out of the way. I want to remind everybody that our website is evidenceforfaith.com. We've got archived shows there. In fact, I should mention that our website was designed by Doug Powell just on the side there, in case anybody was wondering. But we've also got podcasts available at iTunes and Double Twist for the Android systems. Uh, You can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com, and please check out the website for Ratio Christi. It's org.
2: And if you would like to hear the entire version of that really neat song that opens our program, it's by a Christian group called For Him. You can go to our Facebook page, and we have the complete video there.
1: Oh, you posted it.
2: Cool. Yeah, it's on there.
1: Yeah, I keep forgetting to mention the Facebook page. We get a lot, of, a lot of activity. A lot of our email actually comes through the Facebook page these days. Yeah, great. And that reminds me also, I should mention for people, the creation night where I spoke at Kennett Square High School in Pennsylvania That has been uploaded to the Creation Night website. So the whole hour talk and the slides are up there if people would like to see how that went. And you can also find it on YouTube. I think if you just go to YouTube and search for Creation Night Keith Kendricks and you'll find that talk there. So that was, that was a lot of fun. That is up online now. But that was old news. We should talk about what's upcoming new news. I'm going to be speaking at the Medford Alliance fellowship church in medford new jersey the 18th that's going to be a young adult and youth event i'm going to be doing one of those fake atheism things kirk have you heard heard about that
2: fake atheism
1: yeah where an apologist will go in and pretend to be an atheist
2: no i haven't
1: (laughs) yeah it's a good it's a good test for youth groups to see if they are able to defend the faith oh okay so uh, they're looking to get some apologetics started at that church, and so I'm going to help them out by showing them the need for it in the first place.
2: So you're all, uh, you could put it another way and say you're playing a devil's advocate, right?
1: Absolutely, that will be me. I'm going to come complete with the horns. Oh, good. I I couldn't fit into the red suit anymore, so. Um,
2: well, stop by a Halloween superstore, and you can get a pitchfork real cheap.
1: <laughs> there you go. That's what I need. <laughs> And then the 19th, I'm going to be speaking at Stockton Christian Fellowship on the importance of apologetics. So that is a couple local things coming up. And then you and I, Kirk, you and I are going to a great conference. This is in Philadelphia or just outside Philadelphia at Covenant Fellowship Church, April 5th and 6th. So it's Friday night and all day Saturday. Put on by the Discovery Institute. It's called the Westminster Conference on Science and Faith. And this is really good. I've gone the last couple of times, and it's very good. A lot of top-notch biologists, Ph.D. researchers talking about the latest research on intelligent design. So you're going to have a great time there.
2: These guys at the Discovery Institute, uh, I'm really impressed with them. They really put on some neat programs. Yeah, don't they? Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, lots of good. There's another... If you're looking for things to watch on YouTube, go to Discovery Institute and pop up some of their talks. Very, very good. Now, Kirk, I told you about this really funny news item that came across this morning from Nature World News. And the headline is House Dust Mite Study Shows Reverse Evolution Possible. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Oh, no, you're kidding me. Reverse evolution is possible. I thought the question was whether evolution was possible or not. But, no, apparently there is the belief that evolution can never go backwards. Had you heard that before?
2: Uh, Yeah, I kind of see that every time I go out and get in my car.
1: That <laughs> my car is devolving. Oh, yeah, yeah, but, I mean, <laughs> have you ever heard an evolutionist say that evolution cannot go backwards?
2: Hmm. I don't think I've ever heard them address that topic.
1: Yeah. I mean, they'll admit that, of course, they claim it goes forward, but they would say it's random, backward, forward. And then if it goes backwards or downwards, then things are likely to die off. And if it goes upward or forward, gains new information, then it's more likely to survive. But this article says that the idea that organisms can't revert back is held by Dolo's Law. Okay, which states, quote, that evolution is not reversible. In other words, structures or functions discarded during the course of evolution do not reappear in a given line of organisms. Hmm. Uh, well, I never heard that law before as much as I've read on evolution from uh, secular side of things. And yeah. it says the hypothesis was first advanced by a historian, Edgar Quinette. Well, there you go. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe you shouldn't be getting science from historians. Huh. Uh, I'll tell you what. Let's make a deal with the atheists. We won't get our history from scientists if they won't get their science from historians.
2: That's that's a good one.
1: <laughs> so this is from two biologists at the University of Michigan. They published in the Journal of Systematic Biology. And I'm sure everybody probably knows what house mites are. They're those little microscopic... I guess you would call them insects that live on mattresses and sofas and carpets and things. Yeah, those and
2: ugly little monsters that crawl all over you at night while you're in bed.
1: Yeah, apparently that you don't know. They're too small to see. Or I guess i guess <laughs> maybe the bigger ones you can barely see or something, that, but they're very, very tiny. Yeah. These mites supposedly have evolved from parasites that in turn evolved from free-living organisms. So they first they weren't parasites – And then they became parasites, and now they're no longer parasites. So, you know, this fits in with what we've been saying about evolution, and we'll be continuing to talk about it in the next couple of weeks. But listen to this quote from the article here. It says, Parasites can quickly evolve highly sophisticated mechanisms for host exploitation, and can lose their ability to function away from the host body. They often experience degradation or loss of many genes because their functions are no longer required in a rich environment where hosts provide both living space and nutrients. Many researchers in the field perceive such specialization as evolutionarily irreversible. But I just want to make the point that the only change they're really seeing is loss of function. Right, loss of many genes, but according to the well, a lot of the atheists that try to argue with us, you only get new genes. There's no such thing as a broken gene. Hmm.
2: Interesting. All right.
1: Well, that's it for news items. So I, I thought, have.
2: I thought you were going to tell me that those little dust balls that collect in corners that they somehow evolve into rabbits or something.
1: Oh yeah, could it be? Let's start a new theory. <laughs> oh no, wait—that one's been done before. All right, and On as to for, as for and evolution, things because we're going to reintroduce, and our fans will remember, Doug Powell. Doug, welcome once again to Evidence for Faith. Hey, Keith, thanks for having me. Doug is a apologist. He's an author. He's a musician. He's a graphic designer. He was on the show four years ago, right, Doug?
0: Yeah, I was uh, in the Wayback Machine, I guess.
1: That's right. Yes, so you've been around for a long time. (laughs) You are the author of the Holman Quick Source Guide to Christian Apologetics, and I think that's what we were interviewing you at the time. Because that's a great book, and even though we talked about it four years ago, that is still a really essential introductory book on apologetics. I recommend it very highly, and it's also a very beautiful book.
0: I will say, and it has one of the coolest titles ever for a book, doesn't it? The whole yeah, I still don't know the quick source
1: thing. Is it is it because it's kind of small and handy? Is that you're <laughs> supposed to put it in your back pocket?
0: Uh, it's, it's, uh, no, it's actually kind of heavy, uh, yep. it's, uh, although it's odd shape, uh, it's, it's, uh, part of the series of quick source guides that, uh, b did, and I just happened to do the apologetics one, but there is no, uh, getting out of that title, unfortunately. Yeah.
1: that's right, you had so. to follow in the series.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's the kind of title that doesn't really have movie rights written all over it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Doug was a fellow graduate student with me at Biola, and he ha- he did our very beautiful website, and he has now turned his graphic artist's ability and apologetics abilities to some very beautiful books and iPad apps. So, which I'm really thrilled with. I've had the Eyewitness Resurrection iPad app for quite a, quite a while, I guess since it first came out. And then, thank you, Doug, for sending me the remaining ones. And oh, well, you're I guess, Stuff. Are there more coming? Uh,
0: well, let's see. There are four apps right now, and two of those are physical books. And uh, so, the four apps you've got: the Resurrection Eyewitness, Jesus Eyewitness, New Testament Eyewitness, and the latest one is Eyewitness Biblical Archaeology. Um, if the series continues as a print book, the next one will be the biblical archaeology one. Um, oh, good. And I'm working on uh, one for World Religions right now.
1: Oh, okay. World Religions is going to be the next app then?
0: Yes.
1: Great. Wonderful. Well, uh, it, it seems like you've got almost an endless supply of possibilities because you're really the only guy doing the format, at least I've never seen anything like it, Can you explain to people, I mean, obviously this is radio, so it's going to be tough. And and Kirk has not actually seen just how beautiful these books are. But let me just briefly describe for people, and then, Doug, you can fill in what I'm missing. These are books that are about the size of a coffee table book. So they're a large book. They're made out of the heavy cardboard. The pages are heavy cardboard pages glossy that are similar to a pop-up book so as you open them you might expect there to pop up like a church or something like that but instead of things popping up what you have are all these places where there's extra material folded over pages and little what look like pieces of notepaper or ancient manuscripts, and then you lift them up and see what's under underneath, or if there's an envelope, you open it and see what's inside. So every page has something stuck to it that's folded and glued down to the page, and it's a real, just a tactile kind of, it's perfect for tactile learners. I think that's what it's perfect for. So is there a name for this kind of book?
0: Uh, w- uh, 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 not that I know of. We just kind of call them interactive books. Yeah, um,
1: yeah that's what it literature. is. I mean, they're not like the old interactive books where you know it asks you a question. If you want the murderer to be discovered, turn to page 32. And if you want the murderer to get away, turn to page 44.
0: <laughs> that's right. It's, it's not the, that the, kind the, of an interactive book. It's not book. interactive in that way. It's not, it doesn't have that kind of non-linearness to it.
1: Right. So you, you, you work your way through the book. And what's fascinating is people love this this way of doing things. I mean, you know, I put I took a stack of books with me to the Ratio Christi meeting at Stockton College. This book got picked up first of all because it's so beautiful. And then when people open it and they go, "Oh, look at this." And guess what? They have to turn every page and they have to open every flap. So <laughs> You know, it's like all the other books get ignored, and this gets and, – and then you know what they did? The person – we were giving away books as prizes. The person who got this book felt so guilty that they actually brought it back to the meeting, and every week they gave it to a different student.
0: <laughs> Is that cool? Uh, oh, that's very cool. Thanks for telling me.
1: Yeah, so uh it's cool although I you know I, it's cuz that they were poor students they couldn't afford to each buy one which I'm sure you probably would have rather heard me say. <laughs> so
2: these these are not only interactive
0: oh, well, maybe one day.
2: These are not only interactive books but they increase your social life too. <laughs>
0: I have not had that experience, but I'm glad it is for someone.
1: <laughs> well, no, you're probably kept in a dark, dank basement trying to put out more of them. I imagine your publishers are very happy with the success of the book so far.
0: Uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it, like you said, there's really nothing out there like it. And so it's a bit of a risk uh, that they took even doing the book. But then, as you said, when you see the book, it's it's, it's such a unique it's, it's such a, a, a strange way of presenting the information that it, it just kind of sells itself. Because um, uh, it, it, it is, it, it, even if the, just the form is so engaging that, that people who aren't interested in the topic will still spend time working their way through it just because it's so fun to kind of uh, be in a position where you do the investigation yourself and open these blasts and just see what's going to come next.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: As an author myself, I'm kind of in, I would be kind of interested to see what your original manuscript looked like.
0: Uh, well, uh, I wrote and designed it at the same time, so uh, it, 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 I would, uh, you know, I. I've don't, there's not a lot of manuscript without the images. I knew what I wanted to say, and I had to find images that represented it. And uh, so that I kind of did both at the same time. A little, little bit of an odd approach. With uh, biblical archaeology, that was different. I was writing pieces on different finds and then going and finding the finds. And um, usually I'd have a little bit more uh, text on the piece than I could fit in the book, so I'd have to trim it up a little bit. And... Um, so it's not very exciting. So It's definitely not uh, written like a traditional book, um, So, but then it doesn't come out that way either.
1: Mm. Now, I'm thinking back, Doug, I know we had you on four years ago for your other book, but didn't we also have you briefly on when the first Resurrection Eyewitness app came out as a, just a, a short commercial
0: for that? I don't remember honestly okay uh, maybe? I,
1: I think we did, but uh, maybe it was just you and I talking because we do run into each other at conferences and stuff so it's you know good catching up with you every once in a while and so maybe it was just you telling me about how you got into how you uh, came up with these books. but for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a Ministry of Racio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks.
2: I'm Kirk Hastings.
1: And we are speaking with author Doug Powell, who has written some beautiful books. The first one I want to get into is the Eyewitness Resurrection. Now, Doug, you have written this as an apologetic argument for the veracity of the resurrection. And you're using a format called the Minimal Facts Argument. So can you explain to people what's the Minimal Facts Argument?
0: Sure. The uh, minimal facts argument uh, is kind of based on taking a survey of uh, the state of scholarship that, uh, regarding the resurrection uh, uh, in a way that you, you would look at what all the, all the New Testament scholars uh, currently or within the last hundred years or so believe about what happened to Jesus two days after he died. Not everybody uh, accepts the Bible. As uh, as inerrant, or uh, they don't accept that everything that it's going to say about the resurrection is factual, and so what they uh, and that's that's because to be a New Testament scholar, you don't have to be a Christian. There are Christians who are. Uh, conservative and hold to inerrancy. There are Christians who are liberal and don't, but they accept some of these things, in fact, as facts. And then you have New Testament scholars who are atheists or Jewish or any number of things. And so the the number of things that are considered facts. Uh, vary depending on what each scholar believes. But what's interesting is when you kind of make a checklist of, of everything that's claimed as a fact in the New Testament and you, and you compare it to what the New Testament scholars believe, there are about a dozen facts that virtually every scholar gives you. They still accept, even if they deny the, the resurrection. They still believe there are about uh, a dozen things uh, that are uh, factual in the New Testament accounts, and uh, what. Interesting about that is they all try to explain what happened to Jesus in a way that denies the resurrection, and yet whatever explanation they come up with doesn't make sense of the facts that they themselves agree on. It's a a very strange uh, thing. The only thing that explains all the facts, even the ones that even the most skeptical uh, scholars agree on, is the resurrection. And so, what I've done in this book is uh, made the uh, made it even harder for. Uh, for the Christian case, and only use six facts. And using only these six facts, um, you still end up with the resurrection being the best explanation for what happened to Jesus. And so it, it explains each of the six facts, and it goes through all sorts of different alternate theories that scholars have put forward and shows how it, they don't even account for the six, these six facts, half of the evidence that they uh, uh, generally accept.
1: So let's go over what the six facts are then. Now, when you say these are facts, what you're saying is that even the skeptical or atheistic or at least secular New Testament experts, scholars in the field say that they agree that these things happen or these things are true, even though they wouldn't say that Jesus did rise from the dead.
0: That's right. Say, Well, I don't accept that as a fact. They're not rejecting Christian scholarship. They're rejecting the entire state of New Testament scholarship, and nobody wants to really be in that position. Right. So, okay. So, uh, so, uh, so, so, and, so, and the, so. the reason these facts are what they are is because they're, they're, uh, they've got more than one source, and because they have, uh, one of the sources is an enemy attestation, uh, meaning that it comes from a non-Christian source. Okay. <laughs> and so uh, the six facts are that Jesus was crucified, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus was buried in a tomb and that three days after he was buried, the tomb was found empty, uh, that many of Jesus' followers believed that they saw him after his death, and that some of Jesus' enemies also believed they saw him after his death.
1: Now let's talk so, about that fact, because I think that's a little-known fact. Who are the enemies that claim that they saw Jesus?
0: Well, the two, two prime ones are Saul of Tarsus, who in, uh, be, becomes the Apostle Paul, uh, and Jesus' brother, James. And, and any theory you try to come up with that denies the resurrection has to explain the radical change in behavior that both these guys experienced, because when Jesus was crucified, neither one of them uh, were believers, and yet something happened to each one of them that made them radically reorient their life around the claim that Jesus was raised uh, from the dead and was, in fact, God incarnate. Now, in the case of, uh, of Paul, uh, he was uh, uh, this well-trained, uh, gifted Pharisee who was very zealous for uh, upholding um, uh uh, Judaism and he was actually on the way to persecute round up uh, some Christians in uh, Damascus and something happened to him on the way there he claims he ended up showing up at Damascus not to arrest people but it, he said he was a believer and said that he had encountered Jesus on the road there and uh, and believed that so strongly that he spent the next 35 years or so on the road being... Uh, beaten in prison, shipwrecked, experienced all sorts of hardship and hunger, and ultimately tradition says he was beheaded. So, you have to have a theory that explains, uh, the behavior of Paul. But even tougher to explain is James, uh, who didn't believe that Jesus was, uh, who he said he claimed to be, uh, while Jesus, uh, before he was, before he was crucified. In fact, he thought he was insane, if, uh, in, in the Gospels. Um, in Mark 3.21, he actually uh, believes that Jesus was a little crazy. <laughs> and yet, uh, he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus' death. Now think about this. Uh, you know, th- hey, was, uh, a lot of people have brothers. So if you got a brother, think about your brother. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was God incarnate? Uh, I've got a brother, it would take a lot. <laughs> and, he, and he would say the same thing about me, that James believed it so much that that his own brother was God incarnate that he uh, not only completely reoriented his life around that belief and became the leader of the Church of Jerusalem, but he died for it. He was thrown off the, the highest square of the temple in Jerusalem and hit the pavement but survived, so the crowd round down, ran down there and they hit him in the head with a club until he died. Okay, so you're going to have to explain uh, these two guys who were enemies of Jesus while he uh, before his death, and uh, and then all of a sudden had this radical radical change.
1: Yeah, that in itself, just that fact seems to me pretty powerful, and it, I'm automatically thinking that that wipes out a lot of the alternative theories, and of course, I guess that's the point, is that the critic of the resurrection has to come up with some other explanation other than what the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts say happened. They have to you know, tell us the real truth, like the uh, defense attorney or the prosecuting attorney who's going to tell you how these facts fit to get his client off. So, so it, then in your book, you go through all the different theories. So I guess uh, I guess we can briefly go through that, and then we'll, we'll get into some of the other books. It looks like you've got everything that I have heard of before, swoon theory, that they went to the wrong tomb, the stolen body, the legend, the idea that it just came up and developed as a legend, the hallucination theory, that seems to be the most popular one, and you've got even in there the twin theory, or the substitute theory. So, why don't? Why aren't one of these theories uh, good enough? I mean, you know, the hallucination one seems pretty uh, that, the most popular, at least.
0: Uh, why aren't they good enough? All of them actually fail to explain all six of uh, of the minimal facts. Uh, and in the case of the hallucination theory, uh, you fail to explain why enemies believe they saw Jesus, the two guys in particular that we just talked about, would have no reason to uh, hallucinate uh, a risen Jesus. Uh, And the other fact that's so uh, uh, persistent in uh, blowing up alternate theories is the fact that if the hallucination was what happened, then there's a body in the tomb. Uh, the empty tomb is, is, is another one of these hard ones to explain. So, uh, if Christianity started to take root and gain popularity, then the only, all you had to do in order to, uh, destroy this new religion was open up the tomb and there's the body and Christianity is dead. Everybody knew where the tomb was, uh, and, you know, it w- wouldn't take much to do it. So the fact that, uh, that didn't happen is, uh, further evidence that the tomb was found empty. Um, so, and, and there are other reasons for not uh, believing in hallucination theory, but uh, those are uh, those are two ways in which they fail uh, to meet the minimal facts.
1: Great. So, this is kind of like a detective story. Where you're going over the evidence, it's like you're in a court case. We've got the evidence, you know, that he died. Here's all the evidence for the empty tomb. Here's all the evidence about his friends, what they claimed, and the enemies, what they saw. And then you go through the kind of the uh, defense attorney. Oh, no, no, no. You know, my client didn't do it. Here's what really happened. It's it's like I, I heard a caricature of a defense attorney about a a guy who's suing because he gave this antique water pitcher to his neighbor and it came back with a crack in it. So the, I think the defense attorney said I have five reasons why this didn't actually happen. Number one, he never gave my client the water pitcher. Number two, he gave it to him but it had a crack in it. Uh, Number three, there isn't a crack in it. And you know, and basically gives all these different reasons but they (laughs) none of them could be true. So this is really exciting.
2: This also is beginning to sound, Keith, like cold case Christianity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, yeah, it's really exciting. I think people are going to like this. And especially I have to point out one unique item. Doug, you know, you and I both read a lot on apologetics, but you've done a really beautiful thing in the very center of the book. There is the martyr's map and you just don't see this kind of thing. So did you have to piece this together, or have you seen anything like this before?
0: Uh, no, I hadn't seen anything like this before, but I think very visually. So, you know, it, it was a natural thing to, to put together uh, from, in, in terms of, of, of how I think of these things. And it's, um, it, it's just such a powerful way to understand uh, how strongly – the disciples believed that Jesus was risen. The fact that they went as far uh, around the world uh, as they did is really pretty amazing when you map it out.
1: Yeah, uh, somebody made it up to Britain. It says here that somebody was in Ethiopia. And then we've got Doubting Thomas. I know the, the, the pin, What, what uh, for the radio listeners, what he's got is this map of the Mediterranean and he's got a uh, what looks like a pushpin for everywhere that a disciple was martyred. And there's one way over in India, and so that person went the furthest. And it's so funny that that was Doubting Thomas.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, and there's a little uh, caveat here, and that's that most of these most um, uh, uh, most of, most of the, play, the pushpins, in terms of the locations and also how they died, I list that as well. Um, are we rely on tradition for that. Not a lot of this is kind of locked down history. Um, right. But the interesting thing is that um, of the uh, 11 people I listed and, and marked on the map, there may be an alternate location for where they were martyred or an alternate way in which they were martyred, but nobody got out of martyrdom. Um, right. And I believe that, that uh, Sean McGowell just wrote his uh, PhD dissertation uh, on this very thing. So uh, maybe you'll see a, a book on that soon. I don't know.
1: Oh, great. Well, I know when I was reading The Travels of Marco Polo, that Marco Polo, when he was going through India claimed that he stopped at the church that was set up by Doubting Thomas. And he said that in in this case, you have that he was speared, I believe it. Yeah, speared. And Marco Polo said that what he was told was that he was shot with an arrow. But um, basically the same thing, speared or arrow, uh, sounds pretty similar. So, okay, well, um, let's jump to some other because we got a lot of, to cover before the end of the show. Let's do... Jesus eyewitness next, because that's the next book in the series, and it's just as beautiful about the same size and exactly the same style with all these discoverable, tactile, physical things that you can open and flip. In fact, you know, I find myself, I want to make sure I don't miss any. So I I find myself, I keep rubbing my hand across the pictures. Some of the pictures are so beautiful and stand out so realistically that, that I think they're 3D also. So I rub my hands across them just to make sure I'm not missing something to open. (laughs) Let's talk about this book. It's a it's a life of Christ, right?
0: Uh, Yeah, set up as the life of Christ, and kind of the the different stylistic approach of this one is that I use a lot of uh, photos from the earliest days of photography of the Holy Land, because at that point in the mid 19th century, uh, technology had not touched this part of the world. Almost at all. Uh, it, uh, when you see these photos, it looks about, the, you know, how you imagine it would have looked in Jesus' day. And so there's something, uh, that kind of puts all the dirt and the smell, uh, back into the story when you see these photos. And, uh, because this is about the historical Christ, Jesus and, and his ministry, uh, that, uh, it, it, it it's easy to kind of, uh, Lose the the kind of the the real historical um, uh, flavor uh, to his life, because we see it represented so much in in paintings or movies or something like that. And so these photos really help us get all the way back to that first century.
1: Yeah, yeah. You've got pictures of like Nazareth as a very tiny village. Of course, now there are highways that go by and big apartment buildings and things. But this gives you the feel of the little village that, of course, it probably is bigger than it was in Jesus' time, but at least it gives you some idea. And you've got a really neat map that shows the route of Mary and Joseph on their travels to Bethlehem for the section on the birth of Jesus. And something that I found very interesting, can you explain about this word for the inn? You know, we always get the idea that they, they went to an inn but this was supposed to be a very small fishing village or farming village just out in the boondocks, so how could there have been an inn there? It doesn't make much sense. And you have a really great explanation about that.
0: Uh, well, you know, I, I'm, this, the explanation's not original with me, uh, so I don't want to make uh, too much of that. But it, this is one of the more uh, fascinating things to me as well when I... Uh, dug into the, the birth narratives, and that's that uh, in, uh, around this time, the homes were traditionally three-room homes, and what you'd have is a, a big room where uh, it was kind of like our living room and kitchen and bedrooms all combined. Uh, the families all ate and slept and, and uh, really hung out in this one main room, and you had a, a room, very often uh, built below it, uh, um, or in sometimes to the side. That is where your kind of your domestic animals were, were kept—goats and, and things like that. Uh, and then you had a third room that was reserved for guests. It was for you know special visitors. And uh, that room is uh, uh, now when you and when you take that and you combine it with the, the fact that Bethlehem was so small and it was on a uh, not on a major trade route and it was very close to Jerusalem uh Bethlehem probably didn't have any kind of inn in the sense of a hotel or a lodging house uh, at all so uh so this changes uh, how we think of the the first narrative because uh, when Joseph and Mary roll into town where she's they're going back there because uh, that's Joseph's uh, uh, family town. So where do you go when you go back home? <laughs> it's his hometown. There's probably family there. So they go to uh, his family's house, uh, very possibly, and the guest room is full because other people are returning to Jerusalem as well. So they stay in the only other room that there would have been, which is down with the animals. So um, the uh, the interesting thing is that... Uh, uh, the word that gets translated in, uh, in, uh, the birth narrative there is the same word that later gets translated as the upper room when you get to, uh, the, uh, the passion narrative, the last Supper. Um, that, uh, uh to it's it's further add to that, when, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan is given, uh, that, that does end up at a lodging house, and there is a special word for that. It's a, it's a different word that's used to mean, uh, this, uh, you know, this place where you, you pay to stay. And that's not the word that's used when, uh, we're talking about, uh, there not being any room at the end. Uh, it might mean that, but it doesn't have to mean that. And if you read the early church fathers, there's uh, almost, they're almost a little bit split on, uh, on how to interpret that. There is an early tradition that does see um, uh, the, there being some kind of uh, lodging place, or it could be that people were renting out their guest rooms if they didn't have anybody to stay there. So, you know, it could be exactly as we envision it, but more likely they showed up at their relative's house and there was already people in that room. And uh, and they just stayed in the third room, which is where the animals
2: were. Mm, we're definitely not talking about a holiday inn where they come in and check in at the front desk and uh, <laughs> at their baggage taken right. upstairs and all that kind of stuff.
0: That's right. So it, uh, it kind of blows up the uh, traditional nativity scene.
1: So, that, yeah, some, some um, Christmas plays might have to be reworked a little bit. <laughs> That's there, right. I, now, I did actually read a translation recently I thought it was odd as a matter of fact I read the translation and it used instead of in it used the word guest room there you uh, go it's it said guest room and I thought oh that's odd why, why does it say that but um, never bothered to look it up
0: yeah you dig into the Greek then that that word right there is the same word that gets translated as upper room but it's not the same word as in the parable of the good Samaritan
2: Okay. How, how about the nativities where you, uh, they depict them uh, staying, like, in a cave? Is there any accuracy to that or not?
0: Well, in this part of the world, uh, uh, again, there were, uh, right around Bethlehem, a lot of these three-room houses were actually built in caves or on top of caves. So you might have, like, two rooms above ground, and then the, the lower spot where you put the animals was in the cave and uh, and i actually have uh pictures of it both ways even uh in the 1800s people were still living in these three room homes uh, some of them in caves and i and i show that um So the the very earliest traditions we have that describe where Jesus was born describe it as a cave. So that fits in there perfectly. And then when you add uh, to the fact that um, about a 100 years after uh, the crucifixion, when Hadrian was trying to uh, destroy some of the venerated sites, uh, such as Jesus' tomb, uh, he also tried to destroy uh, his birthplace. So what he did was he uh, filled in the caves where Jesus, at that point, we're talking about 100 years after his death, uh, this is where people uh, believed that he was born. They filled it in with dirt and planted a grove of trees over it. And then when Constantine's mother, Helena, was touring the area, uh, the Christians told her what Hadrian had done, and so they removed the trees, dug out the dirt, and there are these caves. And that's why the Church Nativity is where it is. Um now we I, I don't know if there was any kind of indication that that specific cave was the cave um but that network of caves there's good reason to believe that that's, that is the place.
1: Mm, cool. So this makes a beautiful another beautiful coffee table book a great gift for the Christmas season because it's a life of Jesus. So everybody should put that down on their list. <laughs> well, let's jump into the other apps, and remind people, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Rasho Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks.
2: I'm Kirk Hastings.
1: And we are speaking with author and apologist Doug Powell about a couple of books that he has written and designed, I guess is the best way to say it, because it's much more than just writing, and some iPad apps that are terrific for witnessing because they've got beautiful pages. There's a little bit of music that plays in the background as you turn the pages. And there are four of them, right, Doug? Let's see, Eyewitness, Biblical Archaeology, Jesus Eyewitness, New Testament Eyewitness, and Resurrection Eyewitness. So the first two that we've talked about, the whole book is in the form of an iPad app. And uh, you can get it on Android now, is that right?
0: That's right. I'll, uh, I actually, everything but Resurrection Eyewitness is available for Android tablets.
1: Okay. So let's jump into the New Testament one. Uh, tell us about your iPad app, New Testament Eyewitness.
0: Well, this one, uh, the, about the first half of the app goes through where the Bible came from, why the 27 books are what they are, and how we know that. So if it traces the history, uh, from about the uh, end of the fourth century going backwards to see how close we can, uh, connect these 27 books with their, their authors and when the church accepted them as authoritative. Uh, and then, uh, and then from the, the back half of the book, Follows how the, the Bible is handed down and transmitted to us, how it was copied, and how we know, uh, that the copies that we have now are, uh, uh, uh how we know they're accurate, and how the mm. text can be recovered based on the uh, 5,800 plus original manus- uh, language manuscripts that we now have.
1: Yeah, now this is the going backward. I think that's a great idea. You you did that in your Holman quick reference guide to Christian apologetics where you start with the New Testament as the official canon and then you go backwards to see where it came from. I think that's a very clever way uh, to do it.
0: Oh, well, thank you. You know, uh, I found that if I did it, like, chronologically just going forward, then by the time I end my case, I'm 400, you know, I'm at AD 393 or so, and people are like, yeah, but that's 400 years later. And so uh, I found it way more effective to start at the, uh, the, the councils where these books were finally officially recognized and going backwards from there. That makes the case way better, I think.
1: Yeah, you you see how it developed, and and it makes a lot of sense that way. Now, you add to that, though, there's some new things I don't remember them being in the your guide before, where you talk about the manuscript families, and both you and I had to go through a lot of intensive training on manuscript studies and the families and, and where our New Testament came from, and, and I've never ventured to teach this topic just because I thought it was so complex, but you do it in a very simple way in this app. So do you want to talk a little bit about the manuscript families for people?
0: Uh, sure. What the, what the manuscript families are, and the way I do it is I, I've got it on a map, again, very visually, uh, is if you take the 5,800-plus original language manuscripts uh, and you compare them with each other, then uh, what's interesting is that no two uh, copies agree with each other. Now, some of them are whole Bibles and some of them are very small fragments, you know, just inches across. Um, so uh you know they all have a different uh uh different degree of information or a different amount of information but it but almost no two uh copies agree with each other they all vary in terms of uh spelling differences or word order and stuff like that. Um, but if you uh, y- uh, add to this stack of 5800 original language manuscripts, if you add to that the quotations from the Church fathers, and there are thousands and thousands of these things, then because we know where the church Fathers lived and because we know we uh, um, and because they're, they're quoting these uh, these books, we know uh, uh, kind of where these errors um, were, uh, introduced into the text in terms of both geography and time. So it helps sort things out because if you see Augustine quoting something, it's going to be, uh, uh, and it's, and it's different, uh, than uh and he preserves some kind of error or transposition in his quote then we kind of know the part of the world where that came from and about the time period it came from so using that um, there you can you can actually divide the, all of these manuscripts into three different families you've got kind of uh a group of manuscripts that all share the same characteristics the same uh sorts of errors that uh are centered around Um, Alexandria, Egypt, and so we call this the Alexandria. And then you've got another group that's uh, centered around uh, Byzantium, so over in Constantinople, Uh, and that's where most of the manuscripts uh, are from. So by far the the greatest number of manuscripts uh, uh, are Byzantine. And then you have a group of manuscripts that are centered around Rome, and we call this the Western family. So you have these three different families. And uh, we see in the Western tradition that the, the scribes, the copyists, were much more loose about the way they copied things, and they were much more likely to introduce uh, what they saw as corrections or put in little kind of interpretive things of their own in there. And you don't see that in the other two families. And so none of the English translations that we have today are be- based on the Western text. Instead, they're based on one of the other two. Uh, the King James Bible, the Geneva Bible, they're based on the Byzantine text. And this is why sometimes uh, you'll see in your Bibles that uh, you'll get a little asterisk or parentheses that say uh, uh, not uh, uh, that this word or this, this uh, phrase is not found in the oldest manuscripts, but they include it anyway. Because the Byzantine isn't the oldest family, that's the Alexandrian. So if you like the majority text, then you use Byzantine as your source. If you like the oldest text, that's probably Alexandrian. And that's what we have the fewest of, because they were uh, primarily written on papyrus, which is so fragile, it's not going to exist anywhere outside of an arid climate, which is what you find, find around Alexandria. So those are the oldest, but they have the fewest manuscripts. And so... Uh, our text, if you have really almost any translation except for a Geneva Bible or a King James, is probably based on the Alexandrian, but it still includes things that are found in the Byzantine that are not found in the Alexandrian. So you just kind of have this push and pull going, uh, but but uh, when you reconcile all these things, it's pretty obvious uh, what the original reading is, for a number of reasons, because um, if you have two passages where uh there uh, one is longer than the other then then uh, then the scholars will choose the shorter reading because they were far more likely scribes were more likely to uh uh add things than to subtract things so if they were trying to clarify something uh that would make the, the passage longer so probably the shorter reading is is the uh, more uh probably the original one. Uh, sometimes they try to take a difficult reading uh, and smooth it out a little bit or correct it. And so if you have uh, two contradictory passages and one of them is really kind of tough and the other one seems to be smoothed over a little bit, you choose the tougher one as the original one. Um, a lot of times you'll choose what's in the majority of the copies. Uh, but not all the time. Sometimes you choose the oldest reading. So it just depends. And this is what this push and pull, uh, is. So given these three families and, uh, these kind of criteria that scholars have developed, uh, the, about 99.5% of the New Testament, uh, can be known as the original text with certainty, and the remaining uh, 0.5% is about 400 words or 40 verses, and no essential Christian doctrine is based on uh, uh, that kind of, uh, in, in, on that
1: 0.5%. Wonderful. All right, well, Doug, we've only got about five minutes left, and I want to get into the last book, the or the last app that you have, and that's the Eyewitness Biblical Archaeology. So in this one, you're covering a lot of the really uh, famous and important archaeological discoveries, and you go all the way back to the Flood, right?
0: Uh, Yeah, I start at the beginning of the beginning.
1: (laughs) There are kind of competing theories out there. There's the people who say, well, the Gilgamesh epic, that was the first uh, Flood story, and then the Israelites just kind of modified it, and then you have the young earth creationists who are uh, so hot on the mount ararat is the place and and they keep searching and they never find but there's another theory out there that's kind of a documentary look at where was the ark was it really at that location mount ararat and how come it was so far away from babel where the, the where they think the tower of babel was so and and i've read about that that there essentially isn't any ark anymore because it was used to build mosques uh,
0: to- now let's see uh, i uh, the traditional place that we call mount ararat is probably not the spot uh that's the one that would be far away from from babel uh, right. if i understand what you're saying and then I, I have uh two alternate locations one of them is that big boat shaped thing uh, not too far from the base of Ararat. That's, that's, that's not the Ark. That some people right. do claim it to be. No, no archaeologist uh, buys into that one. But there is a uh, there is a spot about two hundred miles. Uh, south of Mount Ararat, right on the other side of Turkey, that uh, historically uh, has been considered to be the place that was the landing point of the Ark and where uh, Noah descended, uh, the place of descent, they call it. And that is among this mountain range called the Mountains of Ararat. And that particular mountain is called Mount Judy or Mount And uh And, and you have uh, uh, early church fathers, uh, John Chrysostom among them, you have Josephus, you have um, uh, you have uh, Jewish sources, and then you have Chaldean priests writing about how this is where uh, Noah landed, and you can, if you don't believe me, you can go up there and see it. So as, as late as about 1000 a, a AD, people were walking up this mountain and picking up pieces of wood, from uh, a ship, apparently. Uh, in, uh, I believe that uh, there was even, let's see, a uh, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, uh, even went on the mountain, left some uh, inscriptions on the mountain and, and took a piece of wood from it as, as a good luck charm. And um, so there was a monastery built on the spot that burned down in the 8th century, and there's still the remains of a shrine up there. So... Uh, It is interesting that there are uh, other places that are uh, uh, contenders for where the Ark was, and that one of them has this uh, uh, tradition uh, of there's at least 25 historical writings from uh, from between 500 uh, A.D. going all the way back to about 400 or 500 B.C. It's pretty pretty interesting.
1: Wonderful. Well, we've only got about a minute left. So, Doug, can you give people contact information? How can they contact you to speak for them, or how can they get your apps and your books?
0: Well, the, uh, the apps are all on the iTunes App Store, and all of them, the Resurrection Eyewitness are on the Amazon App Store if you're an Android person. And uh, you can contact me at uh, selflessdefense.com. That's my website, selflessdefense.com. Or you can put dougpowell.com uh, as well.
1: Wonderful. Doug, it's been a pleasure. I hope to see you again at some upcoming conferences. Thank you for being a guest on Evidence for Faith.
0: Oh, uh, Thank you so much for having me, guys.
1: Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence and the number 4 faith.com. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe and always remember that the best reason
0: for being a Christian is because it's true. That was the-